You're listening to Smith Talk with Keith Smith. That would be me, free-thinking American educator, bringing you conservative commentary and analysis on the news of the moment, along with life advice and random facts. Currently, I teach civics and economics to high school seniors. I am a U.S. military veteran, active duty Air Force, Army National Guard, and Air Force Reserve. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this Thanksgiving episode. Going to do something today that I usually do in my classes at school on the day before Thanksgiving break. I tell the story of Thanksgiving like you probably have never heard it before. And I always ask my students, what do you know about Thanksgiving? What do you remember learning about Thanksgiving? And usually they remember something about the pilgrims and Uh, Sometimes they might remember the name of the Mayflower. They remember as elementary students tracing their hand on a piece of paper and coloring it to look like a turkey or making a pilgrim hat, something like this. Generally, the most basic, what you would learn in school as as a kid about Thanksgiving. And so I'm going today to, again, tell you the story of Thanksgiving, like I tell my students, and it's uh, perhaps a story that you have never heard before. Most people have not heard the story of Thanksgiving told like this. So let's just jump right into it. The pilgrims, we know we celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday, a great feast. We get together with friends and family, and it's a day of Thanksgiving. Supposed to be a day of giving thanks to God for the blessings that he has given to us. But it all began with the pilgrims back in the 1600s. Hundreds. So who were the pilgrims? The pilgrims were a group of Protestant Christians that were persecuted by King James I of England, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, I believe otherwise known as uh, the nickname or moniker Bloody Mary. This was at a period of time in British history when the Anglican Church was pretty new on the scene and still trying to solidify their hold or power in England. There were wars fought over this. Anyhow, uh, King James I was pretty big on making sure that the king's church was that the only church, the only option that people had. And he was also big on witch hunts. Maybe you can Google him and look him up. King James I uh, went over to the mainland, attended some witch hunts, uh, trials of witches and things like this. And that's not to say that that tradition or those, uh, in in fact, people believed it was a whole branch of theology, not to say that that did not come to North America. It did. And we know about the Salem witch trials and so forth, but it was pretty bad. Under British law, it was at the time illegal not to go to church, specifically the Church of England. And there was a fine of a fine of one shilling for each missed Sunday or holy day. So if there was a day that you were supposed to go to mass or some sort of service and you didn't go, you got fined a shilling, which today is worth about adjusted for inflation, 20 to 25 British pounds. Now the penalties could get stricter. They also included punishment 
larger fines, corporal punishment, putting people in the stocks, public whippings. And under another British law, there was a series of laws that they passed in Parliament and the king laid the smack down. But there was a uh, an anti-sedition law, religious sedition, and it was aimed specifically at religious gatherings that were unsanctioned. And many people were imprisoned. Three of the Puritans, Henry Barrow, John Greenwood, and John Penry, were executed for their belief, for violating these laws, publicly executed in 1593. And because of this, right around 1600, the group that became known as the Pilgrims look at leaving Britain. They went first to Holland and later worked out a deal where they were able to go to North America. Now, the king was like, it was like, yeah, go, go ahead, you go practice your crazy religious beliefs and North America will be happy for you to sail across the ocean and found a British colony there. You just can't do it here. So long story short, they departed from Plymouth, England after a series of minor setbacks on the Mayflower. Initially, they had two ships, the other one being the Speedwell, which on an interesting side note was one of the ships in the Spanish Armada prior to, uh, a few decades before, but it was getting kind of old and uh, was taking on water, leaking, and so they put in at Plymouth, sold the ship, stuck everybody they could fit on the, onto the Mayflower. That was 73 men, 29 women, 40 of them were pilgrims, Puritans, 22 of the people were hired servants, and the rest were craftsmen, hired craftsmen. Basically, they put out an advertisement saying, who wants to go to North America? Free trip to North America. If you're a blacksmith, a cooper smith, or a carpenter, they knew that they were going to need people with skills that they didn't have in order to found this colony. They put to sea and crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Ocean. Well, what was the trip like? And I asked my students this, well, what do you know about hopping on a boat and crossing the Atlantic Ocean in the 1600s or the 1700s or 1800s? The bottom of the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and North, Central, and South America, but especially Central America, the Caribbean and North Atlantic, is littered with shipwrecks. There was no GPS navigation. There was no way to know if a storm was coming. People, if, if you sailed into a hurricane or a nor'easter, that was it. You could kiss your butt goodbye. You're going to the bottom. It was not a smooth trip. These things were long. It, it took weeks. It could take months, depending on the wind, to cross the Atlantic. And well, what did they eat? Let's talk about the food that they ate on the ship. Well, the primary source of protein besides bugs and worms and weevils that got into the food was salted pork. They would take a wooden cask and they would take chunks of pork, heavily salted, put it in the casks and hope that it would keep, that the salt would preserve the meat. They also had what was called ship's biscuit, which you make basically by taking water, flour, mixing together in the right amounts and then baking it. And it gets hard. It, it's also known as hardtack literally like as, as hard as a you know piece of like a board or a rock and they would have to soak it to soften it up a ship's biscuit and uh the ship's biscuit they would put it in wooden casks as well but after a few weeks it would get weevils get bugs in it and could get worms in it 
and it would go bad. They also took dried peas and uh, beans, things like this that they could that they could uh, dry out and and then boil and cook. So it was pretty much the same meal every day. They you would have a big pot on the ship or over a fire, and they would throw in some beans or some peas. And, uh, you know, if you had some pork that was still good, you, you throw the pork in there and, uh, boil that up. And then you would eat that with a ship's biscuit. And a lot of the time they would eat in the dark because that way you didn't see what was in the bowl. You didn't see the bugs floating around in it or the worms or whatever was, was in there. It was by today's standards, it was disgusting. Anyway, initially for the pilgrims, the trip went smoothly, but then they met with contrary winds, strong winds. They said they went through some storms. They thought they were going to sink. And because of these storms, the main mast started to crack. Main beam, it says uh, in, in the history, started to crack. And so they were able to repair that using a big iron screw that the colonists had with them. It might've been, a, these people, historians speculate, it might've been a jack uh, used in house construction or a, something from a cider press, but they were able to, long story short, fix the leak and keep the ship afloat until they made it to North America. Otherwise they probably would have gone to the bottom. Along the way, it was like, like I said, if you got sick on the high seas, that was it. There, there was no medicine for reducing fevers. There were, there were no antibiotics or antiviral medication. So one member of the ship's crew died and one passenger also died. One of the uh, group of colonists died before reaching North America. And they also had two babies born on the ship on that trip across. So it was a, that in itself is, a, you could make a, a history book and I'm sure somebody has just on that crossing of the North Atlantic. And the pilgrims, of course, credited their survival to divine providence. One interesting thing that happened on the May, on the Mayflower before the pilgrims uh, set foot in North America and founded this colony was they wrote what became the first governing document written in North America. Now, when I teach my students U.S. government, I do a whole section on British uh, government traditions important British documents, Magna Carta, Br British uh, Petition of Right, the British Bill of Rights, these types of things. I don't really focus on the Mayflower Compact, this first governing document, because a big it did not influence in a grand way or really I, even a remote way, I would say, other than it was the, the first governing document, did not influence the framers of our Constitution. Of course, the pilgrims did, the story of the pilgrims but not necessarily the Mayflower Compact. Now, the Mayflower Compact was a constitution. Like I said, before they set shore, they all got on the same page. Being a very religious group of people, they decided to write a governing document based on biblical and Christian principles. So under this charter, all of the colonists would have everything in common. Everybody would work at their assigned task for the common good to clear land, plant crops, build houses, work at their trade, whatever it was, and they would all work to produce what was needed. And in exchange, they would each receive an equal uh, portion of whatever was produced, food, shelter, and so forth. 
Nobody would own anything. Everything was shared and owned by the collective. In other words, collective ownership of the means of production. Most people don't realize that the Mayflower Compact was a quite possibly the first documented Western European experiment with socialism, utopian socialism, 200 years before Karl Marx set pen to paper and wrote the Communist Manifesto. That's the Mayflower Compact. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but let's back to the pilgrims here. So they departed from Plymouth on September 16th, 1620, arrived in North America early November, and they sailed up the coast looking for a place where they could found a colony. And on November 11th, 1620, they stepped on shore. Plymouth Rock is still there. It's got the date carved into it and founded the Plymouth Plantation or Plymouth Colony. Now, the, the pilgrims did not time this very well. They left Britain in September, so October, November. It's taken them about two months, over two months, to get to North America, to actually to the place where they're going to settle. If you know anything about New England, maybe you're in the northern part of the United States or someplace where it gets cold. I'm in, I'm in beautiful, sunny Southern California. And the overnight lows are in the 50s, and the high temperatures uh, during the day are in the mid-70s. But there are, and I tell my, my, most of my students have not experienced extreme cold. They don't know what it's like for the ground to freeze. I mean, there's, you know, they're, they're irrigating out here, new alfalfa. So the ground freezes, the rivers and streams start, to, ponds start to freeze over. You can't plant anything. The many of the migratory birds, the ducks, the geese, they fly south for the winter. And it's it is not an easy existence. You in fact you prepare for winter all year long in cold climates. It was cold, it was snowing when the pilgrims landed, and the ship they'd been at sea already for two months, over two months, and they had used up their supply of food. What was left on the ship was not much. They had seeds that they brought with them, European seeds that they were going to plant, but they couldn't. There were no houses, no electricity, no heaters, no doctors, no medicine. They couldn't, you couldn't go to a hotel and they were running low on food. So you get the picture. This was very bad timing. Consequently, this period of time in the Plymouth colony history, is known as the starving time. During the first winter that they spent at Plymouth Colony, half of the people died of sickness and starvation. And historians believe now that most of those people that died of illness died, uh, most if not all of them, of illnesses associated with malnutrition, including the wife of Governor William Bradford. So it was a very tragic uh, occurrence. Well, we all know the story. The Indians were friendly in the spring and uh, they showed up. They showed the pilgrims how to plant corn and fish. That's a story. They, how to, how to plant. I remember as a kid, the Indians showed them how to put the seeds in the ground with a dead fish so that it would act as fertilizer and decompose and the, and then the corn grew. And then they learned how the Indians taught them how to, what animals they could hunt for. And that there were a lot of, of turkeys. So they hunted turkeys and they had turkeys. And then the British, of course, pie is a very British, I mean, the, Brit the, the Brits will put just about anything in a pie. 
Heck, they were eating eel pie during the during uh, the the this period of time. Uh, King Henry VIII, which is uh, you know a few decades before the pilgrims take off and come to North America. I mean, King Henry Henry VIII, and you know anything about him? You could there are lots of very interesting uh, videos and things like that, documentaries on him and his diet and what they ate. But pie, very British thing. When the pilgrims show up there. Of course, there are neighboring uh, Native American tribes, and the chief of the tribe that lived closest to them sent one of his men, a guy named Tisquantum, we know him as Squanto, to meet the pilgrims. Why does he choose Squanto? Well, he chose Squanto and said, hey, you speak English, go talk to those guys. What? Hold on for a moment. How does Squanto or Tisquantum know English? Well, let me tell you about Squanto. Squanto is a very interesting character. He was a lot of things. He was a diplomat. He was an interpreter, a translator. Squanto was kidnapped by the British explorer, Thomas Hunt, who trafficked him to Europe. He was an enslaved person. Eventually, this Hunt guy sold him in Spain, Malaga, Spain, and some local priests who focused uh, their ministry on education and evangelization of native peoples, bought Squanto and gave him his freedom. Eventually, he traveled back to England as a free man. And some people speculate that during that trip, he may have met Pocahontas, another Native American woman from Virginia. He then returned to North America about one year before the pilgrim set sail back to his native village. So tragic experience, tragic thing for Squanto. He gets back to his village and he finds out that the whole, his, his people are gone. He is the last of his people, the Patuxet tribe. And it is speculated that his tribe was wiped out by an epidemic of some sort. So it's quite likely that Squanto's people were wiped out by an epidemic of some sort, possibly smallpox, which could be absolutely devastating to Indian tribes. And so he was the last of his people. And so Squanto, in his travels, had learned English and he could communicate with the pilgrims, which is why Chief Massasoit's like, yo, hey, you can talk to these people, go over there and talk to the pilgrims, find out why they're here and what they're doing. There, there was a kind of an, a, an, an uneasy truce situation between the pilgrims and the Indians. And so Squanto, long story short, he brokered a peace deal between the pilgrims and the Indian tribes that lived close to them. And it was a peace that lasted for a few decades. The pilgrims lived in relative peace with the Indians that lived close by to them. And part of the reason was, is because the, again, the enemy of the, your enemy is your friend, that old adage. The Patuxet tribe, the Wampanoags had other Indian tribes that were enemies and they could get from the pilgrims things that they couldn't the access to things that they otherwise couldn't have metal metal tools guns gunpowder and an alliance with the pilgrims and the pilgrims could get things from the indians that they couldn't get otherwise things like corn and and the, the assistance that they got without which it's entirely likely that the pilgrims many more people would have died and maybe that colony just uh, goes extinct but Squanto played a key role in these in these meetings and the peace negotiations because he spoke English. 
Random side note, Squanto, when he first met with the pilgrims, asked for something that he knew that they might have, or he thought they might have, that he could not get in North America. And it's kind of funny. I always ask my students, you know, Squanto asked them for something. Yo, hey, you guys, hey, you, you got any uh, of this? And you can imagine the surprise of the pilgrims when Squanto walks up and he can speak English. I ask my students, but what do you think he asked for? And some say, well, you know, they were British. Maybe he asked for tea or maybe he asked for some other type of food, maybe bread, something like this. No, he asked for ale, for beer. Yep, he asked for some ale. Had acquired a taste for that while he was in Europe. So Squanto, uh, at some point in time, had either converted to Christianity while probably while he was living uh, with the priests in Spain. So he was uh, a Christian. And he ended up living in the living with the pilgrims at Plymouth Colony. He moved in with them. When he came home and he found that his tribe, the Patuxets, were gone, he mo moved in with the Poconokets, which was another tribe. But Chief Massasoit was the leader of the Poconokets. There was also there were also the Wampanoags. He left that tribe and moved in with the pilgrims, and lived about uh, close to another two years after that. And he was an interpreter, a guide, an advisor. He became a very good friend with many of the pilgrims, including Governor William Bradford. He introduced the settlers to the fur trade, taught them how to, to plant and, and fertilize native crops, as I mentioned. He proved vital because the seeds, part of the reason, because the seeds that the pilgrims had brought with them from England failed for the most part, didn't work out too well. Barley or wheat or things like this, but the, the corn did quite well. When Squanto died, he got sick and died. And this was back in the, this was in a time where if you got the flu, it could kill you. Life expectancy was much shorter. And so sadly, he was probably around 40 years old when he passed away. But the pilgrims mourned the death of Squanto, mourned his loss. And as the story goes, the pilgrims flourished because of Squanto's help and the Indians' help. And they were so thankful that they threw a big feast party and invited all of their Indian friends to feast with them and in gratitude to their Indian friends, saying thank you to them for their their help that they gave them. Actually, if you read William Bradford's record, there were numerous times when the pilgrims sat down and broke bread with Indians. And there's a lot of speculation about when that first Thanksgiving was or what it was like and things like this. And so that's not how the story ended. Wrong. Even with the help of Squanto, with the help of the Indians, life did not get better. And I'm going to proceed to quote to you some things from William Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation. This is an ebook. You can find it online at www.gutenberg.org. The Gutenberg Project, it's a very cool project, especially if you like history. They take old books that are not in print, where you probably could find this in print. I guess if you went to Amazon book, you could probably find it, but they take these old books and they, they digitize them, put them online for free. You can access it at no cost with almost no restrictions. You can copy it. You can give it away under the uh, project Gutenberg license. So again, that's project Gutenberg at www.gutenberg.org. William Bradford's history of Plymouth plantation. And according to their to, to Governor Bradford, they quote, did not prosper. They still faced hunger during another harsh winter. 
possibly starvation. Why? So according to Bradford, who, by the way, he was governor for a total of 30 years off and on during his life. In fact, most of his life, he was governor, but not, not consecutive terms. According to Bradford, and again, you can imagine the the leaders, the village elders, if you will, of the Plymouth plantation sitting down and saying, okay, what is the problem here? And according to Bradford, quote, many people allege weakness and inability to work. Quote, the young men who are most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength working for other men's wives and children without recompense. Quote, the strong man or the resourceful man had no more a share of food, clothes, etc., than the weak man who could not do a quarter was. Quote, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. Remember, the Mayflower Compact. This is one of the most important untold stories of early American history this experiment with utopian socialism. So what you have happening here, you have a very religious group of people. They wanted to live by biblical under, under biblical law. They all agreed to this. Love your neighbor as you do yourself. If somebody asks for your coat, give them your cloak as well. If somebody asks you to walk a mile with them, go two miles with them. These were all people who were supposed to be good good Christians. They were supposed to go out and they agreed to this. They put their name, all the men put their name to the paper, but it didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? This community of property that Bradford says here, you could, you could translate that. Let's put that in modern language, modern English. Community of property is collective ownership of the means of production. No private property. Each person got the equal share of what was produced no matter what. And so you had some people who, who were lazy perhaps, or they were sick or they were weak and they didn't want to go out to, if you read Bradford's diary, I mean, they did everything they could to get people out to work, including on Christmas day. They tried to get people to go out and work on Christmas day. And people said, well, we don't want to do that. They tried punishing people. They tried whipping people. They tried preaching to them and saying, you're going to burn in the fiery depths of hell. If you go back on your word and none of it worked, human nature kicked in. Human nature kicked in. And I'm sorry, but human nature is human nature and it does not change. Karl Marx believed that humans were evolving socially at a very rapid pace and that human beings were, were not too far distant, distant from arriving at a place socially as human beings where they would be willing to subjugate their own individual sovereignty and desires to the greater collective good, which is, of course, is is foolishness. So what did the leaders of the Plymouth colony come up with? So Bradford's solution, they got together and they quote, again, from Bradford's record here, quote, they allowed each quote, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household and to trust themselves for that. They decided to do away with this community property setup. They took the Mayflower compact and dropped it in the shredder. And they decided to give pure free market capitalism a shot. So they started out with utopian socialism and they transitioned to possibly the purest or, or 
most basic form of capitalism. They told everybody, said, look, okay, whatever land you clear, it's yours. What you plant and what you produce, the corn you grow, the animals, the pigs, the cows, whatever you raise, the cheese that you milk, you take and turn into cheese, your chickens, your eggs, all of it, it's yours. Whatever, you can build his house as big as you want, it's yours. But don't come ask me and the leaders of the colony later, don't come complain to us later that you're hungry. You're on your own. And so what was the result of this, uh, this setup? Let me quote again from William Bradford here. Quote, it made all hands more industrious so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other means could devise. And it saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better satisfaction. It worked. Freedom worked. And it always does. In fact, Plymouth Colony went on to become one of the most successful, most wealthy colonies in North America to the point where they were able to produce enough wealth that they could sell it. They could sell food. They traded with other colonies and it grew. People, they attracted because of this, more people came to Plymouth Colony. And guess what? The widow who couldn't work, the poor, the orphan, the indigent, all of them were taken care of. Nobody went hungry. Remember, this was a religious people, and of their excess, they tithed. They took one-tenth of it, and they gave it to the church. And the church took care of those who could not care for themselves. And again, according to the governor, it saved him, quote, a great deal of trouble and gave far better satisfaction. My friends, socialism has failed. To, pro to, to produce the promised result everywhere it's been tried. It's a utopian idea. And as is the case with all utopian ideas, it is going to result in failure. And so my friends, there you have it. The story of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving. And like I said, there were many times if you read the Bradford account when the pilgrims broke bread with their Indian friends, but it was not until after the change in the economic model that the pilgrims really prospered. And of course, when they sat down and, and broke bread, and if you read Bradford's record and had these feasts, it was not to thank their Native American allies or anybody else. It was to give thanks to God for the things that they had received in great abundance. Thanksgiving was an experiment in two things. It was an experiment in economic systems, or you could say the pilgrims, an experiment in economic systems, socialism versus capitalism, quite possibly the first recorded experiment of this sort. And it was also an experiment in human nature. As I tell my students, as human beings, we are hardwired to survive. And when circumstances become very difficult, we look out for ourselves and those who are closest to us first. And everything else becomes secondary to that when it comes to survival. And that's what happened with the pilgrims. People were not willing to subordinate their own well-being to the greater collective good. And that's it for today. Like I tell my students after I share this story with them, when you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and you're talking about different things, hopefully you don't run across somebody who's going with uh, President Biden's talking points, if you saw that news, but you might just change the subject and say, you know, 
the first Thanksgiving, the Pilgrim's story, was an experiment in two things, in economic systems and in human nature. And then proceed to tell this story in your own words and have everybody at the table think that you are a very studied and erudite person. At least make for good conversation. I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. May we all give thanks to our Heavenly Father for the many wonderful blessings that he pours out in abundance upon us in this great land, the United States of America. God bless you all, and God bless the United States.